Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hello everybody, I'm Jeff, one of the pastors of Salt Church. Warm welcome if you're new or visiting with us, it's great to have you today. Uh, We're going to start with a clip from the show The West Wing about a fictional president who in this clip he confronts the uh, host of a radio show and on her show she's been talking about the laws in the Old Testament against homosexuality. So keep that's the context, let's have a look at this clip. It's alright, we're meant to jump forward but the sound's not working. I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant, tight-ass club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. That clip, I think, captures so well what we're looking at today. What are we meant to do with God's Old Testament laws? What are we meant to do as Christians with the laws in the Old Testament? Uh, Because some of them are clear... Some of them are confusing, some of them are embarrassing, and some of them seem even harmful. What are we meant to do? Do we keep them all? Do we keep some of them, like the Ten Commandments? Do we keep none of them? This is a question that every Christian needs to answer, because if we want to love God, we'll keep His commandments. Here's what God says to His people in Deuteronomy 11. Love the Lord your God and keep His requirements, His decrees, His laws and His commandments always. And here's what Jesus says in John 14. If you love me, keep my commands and anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If we love God, we'll obey God's commands. But which commands is the question we need to answer. This is something every Christian needs to answer. And we also need to answer because we live in a culture that finds the Old Testament laws ridiculous or harmful, and we are often asked to explain them, uh, often in situations like that woman where the whole room goes quiet, uh, where they turn to us to listen, and they judge us and Jesus based on our answer. 
So what are Christians meant to do with the Old Testament law? That's what we're going to explore today. And we're going to use a case study from the bit of Deuteronomy that we're up to about the food that ancient Israel can eat and can't eat. Basically, why can't they eat bacon? What's going on there? What's wrong with bacon? That's what we're going to look at. Uh, and I'm, I'm being pretty ambitious today with you this morning. I'm going to try and answer not one, not two, but three questions that have puzzled Christians for centuries. Here's what we're trying to answer. What's the reason for the Old Testament food laws as a specific example? What are Christians meant to do with Old Testament laws in general? And then what are Christians meant to do with food as a specific example? That's where we're going. We'll see how we go. I'm going to pray and ask that God would guide us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. We pray as we dig into these really massive topics that make a huge difference to the way that we live. Please teach us. Please guide us in your word. Please speak to us and change us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, if I asked you to define Chinese food, I'm sure you could tell me what Chinese food is. You'd tell me about the popular dishes, the spices that are used, the way that Chinese food is cooked. You could do the same thing with German food, uh, because each ethnicity has its own food identity, its own culinary identity. What is ancient Israel's food identity? If you got invited over for dinner by an ancient Israelite, what would you expect to eat? Food from this list. Have a look with me in Deuteronomy 14 and have a look in verse 3. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, those that chew the cud or have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the hare, or the irax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Here's all the animals that Israel can eat and can't eat. And their restrictions are based on biological or behavioral factors. And you end up with a flow chart that looks something like this. Somebody made this on and chucked it on the web, so I just put it up here. Uh, so you're hungry. Say you're an ancient Israelite, you're hungry. You've got four choices. You can eat a land animal, a sea creature, a bird, or an insect. And so we'll, we'll go with the, uh, the land animal first of all. First question you've got to ask is, does it have a divided hoof? Is its hoof split in two? Like there's some hoof prints. I don't know what you call hoof, hoofnesses uh, over there on the right. The cow, the goat, the sheep, they've got a split hoof. But the, the horse has, has got one hoof. So first question, does it have a divided hoof? If it's not divided, you can't eat it. If it is divided, you can eat it. Second question, does it chew the cud? Uh, some animals have a chamber in their stomach where they regurgitate food back into their mouth to chew it a second time before they digest it, which just sounds delicious, doesn't it? Uh, so you can eat the animals that chew the cud, so that's really great. Uh, cows and sheep do that, pigs don't do that. And then the same thing tracks through for all the other food categories. You can eat fish that have fins and scales. You can eat birds that aren't carnivores. You can eat insects that have four legs and wings and that hop. And these restrictions are based on biological and behavioral factors. And this list makes up Israel's culinary identity, uh, like Chinese food or German food. 
And this list is really clear. You can flow chart this. It's really easy to work out for an ancient Israelite what they can eat. The list is really clear. But the reason for the list is very unclear. Why does God say, these are the animals you can eat, these are the ones you can't eat? Uh, And God is very concerned about this. Because look at some of the language in this passage. Look at verse 3. Do not eat any detestable thing. Or jump down to verse 19. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. But any winged creature that is clean, you may eat. Let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm keen. This is not a rhetorical question. I'm keen for answers. Why do you think God said these animals are unclean? Why did God call these animals unclean? Shout out an answer. Why do you reckon God might have said this? This has puzzled Christians for centuries. So let's join in the puzzle. Why do you reckon? Shout out an answer. Yep, so maybe it's a hygiene thing. Some of the animals had diseases, common diseases. Birds of prey, yeah. Yep, yep. Some easier access. These are good answers. Yeah, so there's, there's a difference in what Israel can eat because they're God's special people. Test of obedience, it's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Can't eat things that are at all. Yep, pretty good. All right, uh, let me show you what scholars have come up with. Uh, I cheated, I read other books. His Here's the, the few that people have come up with. Um, I think most of the options we just shared are, are captured here. So it could be arbitrary, just, just kind of random. God is testing if his people will obey him unquestioningly. There is no rhyme or reason, just obey me because I said this is for you. It could be idolatry, that the other nations use these animals in their worship. It could be hygiene, they're unhygienic and harmful, and so God protects his people. It could be allegory. Uh, that they're linked with bad behavior. You know, we say, eat like a pig. Uh, It could be symbolic, that they illustrate something about God. Now, how would we decide between those options? Let me show you some of the wider context of this passage, because I think that'll help us. Come back to the very start of the passage, verse 1. What's the wider wider context show us? We've got this, first of all. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. See the word in there, holy? Uh, Ancient Israel are holy. And holy means special, different, not the same. Uh, I'm sure like you, I have some normal clothes and I have some holy clothes. And I'm sure you have some holy clothes too. I have a suit. Uh, I have a suit at home. I paid 250 bucks for this suit, and I treat it different to the rest of my clothes. I don't wear my suit around the house. I've never worn it to the gym. Uh, it doesn't get put in the wash with the, you know, the rest of my dirty socks and stuff. I, it's dry clean. It even has its own special bag that it's stored in. It is holy. I treat it as different. And Israel are like that. Israel are holy. They're special. They're different. They're not the same. Look at verse 2 again. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. God treats them as different, special, not the same. And since they're different and special, they need to live like it. So, for example, 
They're not meant to cut themselves or shave their heads when a loved one dies. Because that's what the people around them used to do. They would cut themselves, shave the front of their heads when one of their loved one dies so that their gods would see how devoted they were to their gods and, and grant their loved one a good afterlife. They're not meant to grieve like the people in the promised land do. God says, I, I don't want you to cut yourself. I love you. I'll look after you. I'll bring you and your loved one safely home. You're meant to be different, Israel. You're meant to be holy. And it's the same thing with food. There's foods that they can and can't eat to be different to the people in the promised land. There's this distinct food identity. And some of these foods are clean and some of them are unclean. And we hear, we hear unclean and I think we're probably thinking germs, dirt, that kind of thing. But unclean in the Old Testament has nothing to do with evil or hygiene. Clean is about what fits. So imagine you go out and buy a brand new pair of swimmers. There is nothing evil or unclean or unhygienic about that pair of swimmers. But they wouldn't fit. They'd be out of place if you wore those swimmers to a wedding or a funeral. Hot tip, don't wear swimmers to a wedding or a funeral. Because if you did, the swimmers would be unclean. They would be out of place. They wouldn't fit the situation. Clean is about what fits God's people who are holy, so they need to be holy. Unclean doesn't fit God's people who are holy and need to be holy. So with all that context, why did God call these animals unclean? Well, let's look at these options again. It could be arbitrary. It could be just, just kind of like, why are these animals unclean? Because I said so. But why? Because I said so. You need to obey me. That's kind of the, what, what the arbitrary thing means. And it, it could be that, but I feel like that doesn't fit the character of the God we meet in the Bible, who is patient and explains things and speaks. It's also kind of a last resort option. If we can't find a good reason, maybe there is no reason. So that takes us to the second one. Is it idolatry? The, the other nations used them in their worship. Well, they did. Uh, people in the Promised Land did offer pigs to their gods. And so there is some association. The problem is they also offered cows and sheeps, which got sheeps. Sheep. What is sheeps? They, <laughs> they also offered cows and sheep, which God says they can eat. So th this kind can't be the reason because God would have banned all the animals if this was the reason. Uh, it could be a third thing then. It could be hygiene. They're, they're unhygienic and harmful. The problem is they're not. Uh, they're not harmful. Uh, all the unclean creatures are safe to eat if you cook them right, and all the clean creatures can make you sick if you don't cook them right. Uh, so you can get food poisoning from pigs. Uh, there, there's a known illness, trichinosis or something, uh, that you can get from pigs if you don't cook them right. Uh, if it's raw, if you eat them raw or undercooked. But you can get food poisoning from chicken if you don't cook it right. And, and same from beef and lamb. Uh, so this option is kind of not true, but it also just doesn't explain the whole list. It might be true for pigs, but it doesn't explain the whole list of all the animals. So it could be the fourth thing, allegory. Uh, the problem with allegory is it can kind of mean anything. You know, maybe sheep are clean because they remind us of the good shepherd. 
uh, or maybe sheep are clean because their, their, their wool is white like snow and there's no snow in spring and God made the spring, right? Like it, it could mean anything. Uh, so I don't think it's that one. So then it could be the fifth one. Uh, is it illustrating something about God? And I think this is the one that it is. I think there's two things that it illustrates. First, it illustrates that God is whole and perfect. So we have hierarchy charts to classify animals. Uh, and God does the same thing for Israel. Our hierarchy charts are based on whether it's a vertebrate and whether it's warm-blooded and if it's a mammal. Uh, God's got a different hierarchy chart. In God's chart, the perfect version of the animal is at the top of the hierarchy. And then every step down from that moves away from what's perfect. And it's a symbol, it's a picture, I think, of how God is perfect. So as they only eat what is clean, what's at the top of the hierarchy, what's perfect, it reminds them that God is perfect and that we need to be too. And if they eat what's unclean, what steps down in the hierarchy, it would teach them that God's not perfect, he's a mix of good and evil like we are, he doesn't really care how you live. I think that's one of the things that maybe this is showing us, one of the symbol ideas. The second one is that death doesn't fit with the living God. Uh, God is the source of life. He's the very opposite of death. So Israel aren't meant to interact with death. Uh, And you see this clearest in the birds. They can't eat eagles. They can't eat vultures. They can't eat birds of prey because they're interacting with death. And I think this actually carries through in the rest of the Old Testament laws, because if you're sick, if you're bleeding, if you've got mold in your house, if you touch a dead body, you become unclean because you've been interacting with death and with decay. Uh, And like how swimmers don't fit at a wedding or a funeral, death doesn't fit with the God who is life. And eating reminds them of that. There's the options. Uh, I think the symbol one is the, has the most explanation power, but I'm still pondering questions with it. Uh, but it may answer for us one of the questions, one of the questions we're thinking about. What's the reason for the Old Testament food laws? I think it's so that God's people can live holy lives, even in their kitchens. A holiness is God's goal for his people. More than anything else, God wants his people to be holy and different to the people around them. And these laws showed ancient Israel how to do that. And if that symbol idea is right, God, in fact, set up a whole nation's entire food identity to teach them to be holy. Uh, So if you heard German food, you're thinking sausages, sauerkraut, beer. And if you hear ancient Israel's food, you're thinking our God is perfect and alive, and we need to live different. Even in our kitchens, God teaches them to live for God. And the kind of God who tells you what to eat at every single meal is not the kind of God you can hold at arm's length. You know, it's not like ancient Israel had part of their life called church, and another part called work, and another part called me time, and God just ruled one of them. God rules their kitchens. God rules their lives. Which takes us to the next question, the next two questions. 
What are Christians meant to do with the Old Testament laws in general? And then what are Christians meant to do with food as a specific example? Uh, I went down some internet rabbit holes this week uh, and I found quite a number of Christians and churches who say that we are meant to keep these food laws still as Christians, which I think is actually pretty sad because it means goodbye bacon and eggs. Tomorrow for breakfast, it's ox and eggs. Uh, And you can have a side of grasshoppers if you want. You know, this this is a bit of a problem. Let me ask you a question. Show of hands... And no judgment here at all. Just, just give me a gut reaction. This is something Christians disagree about. Just show of hands, give me a gut reaction. Put your hand up if you think as Christians, we're meant to obey all of the Old Testament laws. Okay, put your hand up if you think we're meant to obey some of the Old Testament laws, like say the Ten Commandments or something like that. Put your hand, okay, hands down. Put your hand up if you think we're meant to obey none of the Old Testament laws. Okay, got my work cut out for me. Uh, It's an important question, isn't it? Because the president in the West Wing actually makes a really good point. It's inconsistent to to say, you know, the Ten Commandments, they say don't murder, and so I'm not going to murder. But the food laws, the sacrifice laws, they don't apply anymore. That could well be true. But why? We need to have a very good reason to decide that some of God's commands in the Bible are not for us. Because if we love God, we'll keep his commands. But we need to see which commands does God want us to keep. And we also need a good reason, because it's not only fictional shows that ask you, why are the laws there? Why don't you keep them? You'll be asked this by people who aren't Christians. And if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're exploring this, you're probably asking now, why, what's with these laws? With good reason. So let me go really big and let me try and answer the second question. And then super quickly, I'll, I'll answer the third question. Uh, what are Christians meant to do with the Old Testament laws? I think the way to answer this question is to see who we're answering it for. So I think the Old Testament laws do different things depending on who you're talking about. Uh, A little bit like me, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a son. And I act differently depending on who I'm with. I don't ask my kids for advice. I ask my dad for advice. Uh, I make decisions with my wife in a different way to how I make them with my mum. I act different depending on who I'm with. And I think the Old Testament laws are like that. They do different things depending on who we're talking about. And I think a lot of the confusion that we have as Christians comes because we haven't specified who we're talking about. So let's work our way through a couple of different people. The first one is ancient Israel. The first and most important people, they're the people who get these laws in the first place. What does the Old Testament law do for ancient Israel? It shows them how to keep their covenant and love God. Long before Israel get the Old Testament laws, what happens to them? They're saved from slavery in Egypt. And at the point that God gives them the laws, they're already God's people. So the Old Testament laws doesn't tell them how to be saved. They've already been saved. It's given to people who are already saved. And the covenant, the, the deal that God makes with Israel is not obey me, And you can become my people. 
It's I've already saved you and I've chosen you and I love you. So obey me and you can stay as my people. It's not how to become saved, how to become one of God's people. It's how to remain saved, remain as God's people, live as one of God's people. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the commands show them how to do that. It showed them how to love and be holy for their God. And the commands are given directly to them for them to keep exactly and precisely. That's what the Lord does for Israel, shows them how to keep their covenant, how to love God. What about for Jesus? What does the Old Testament law do for Jesus? Well, the Old Testament laws are fulfilled by Jesus for all of God's people. I'll give you a couple of snapshots in the New Testament that make a connection between Jesus and the Old Testament laws. Uh, Jesus comes and he doesn't ditch the Old Testament laws. In fact, he fulfills them. Here's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And how does he do it? Jesus keeps all of them. Jesus keeps all the Old Testament commands. Jesus perfectly obeys the Old Testament commands. Uh, Alone among all of ancient Israel, alone among all of humanity, in fact, Jesus perfectly loves and obeys his Father God. He's sinless. He's righteous, which means he always lives the right way. And then he trades places with us. Uh, Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, It's kind of like, here's me with my sin. Here's Christ, perfectly righteous. He's treated as if he takes my sin on him and his righteousness comes on me and I'm treated as if I'd kept all of the law as if I swap my sin and his righteousness. And this is applied for us specifically to the Old Testament law in Romans 8, 1 to 4, says God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Everything required by the laws is met in Jesus. So everyone who is in Jesus, everyone who clings to and trusts Jesus, they're treated as if they've met all the requirements too. That's what Jesus does with the Old Testament law. He fulfills them, he keeps them for all of God's people. And then Jesus gives us the New Testament law. He gives the New Testament law to Christians, which shows us how to keep our covenant and love God. Uh, just like ancient Israel was saved before they got the law and, and before they obey God, Christians are saved long before we ever obey God. We're saved by God's grace as a gift and not by works. Because works and gift are the opposite. Uh, if, if this week at work, your bo- you, know, you finish a shift and your boss says to you, look, I'm really feeling generous today. And so I want to give you a gift here's your paycheck. That is a bad boss. You are entitled to that pay. You've earned that pay. But if your boss says to you, look, I'm feeling really generous. I want to give you a gift. You can take the rest of the year off at full pay. Well, then I want to know where you work because that's a great boss. (laughs) 
being saved, being God's people is a gift. It's not something that we can earn by living a good enough life. It's God's gift and it comes by trusting Jesus in spite of the fact that we haven't lived good enough. And can I say in passing, if you're a Christian, never tire of that truth. That is not a truth that you ever move past. It's God's grace to us from start to finish. And can I say to you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're exploring Christianity, this is the heart of Christianity. It is, Christianity is not about us keeping laws or keeping rules in the hope that God may one day accept us. It's about a relationship with the God who already accepts us because Jesus kept the laws. And now we do what God asks because we love God. Not to become one of God's people, not to be saved, but to remain one of God's people, to remain saved, to live as a saved person. In response to God's grace, we obey God. And we obey what? The Old Testament laws? Or the New Testament laws? Well, actually, we obey the, Old Test- the New Testament laws of Christ. Let me show you a very confusing verse in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 to 21. Paul says this, he says, To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Crystal clear, right? How many times can you use law in one sentence? But what's it mean? This is actually really important, this verse, for the question that we're answering. What does it mean? Being under the law is the way the Bible talks about being an Israelite or being a Jew. And so Paul, as a Jew, was under the law. He was under the law until he met Jesus to obey Jesus, to obey God He would keep the Old Testament laws. But now that he trusts Jesus, do you notice he says, I bolded it, I myself am not under the law anymore. So the Old Testament laws is not where Paul would go to find out what God wants him to do. In fact, he can live now like one not having the law. He can eat whatever, he can do whatever. These commandments are gone for him. He can live like someone not having the law if it'll help them become a Christian. But that doesn't mean God could care less how he lives. Now, notice what he says in bold. Now I am under Christ's law. Now he obeys God by doing what Jesus commands. And this is true of all Christians. The Old Testament laws were for God's people in a particular time and place, but they've been replaced by the new covenant, the new laws, the new commands, Jesus' ones. And that doesn't mean we should ignore and cut out the Old Testament laws from the Bible. They're just not directly to us to keep exactly and precisely like they were for ancient Israel and were for Jesus. So what does the Old Testament law do for Christians? Two things. First, the Old Testament law points us to Jesus. Uh, God's people who heard Deuteronomy 14, they failed to keep it. Or they did keep it. They ate only clean animals, but they forgot why God gave them that law in the first place. And they weren't wholly indifferent to the people around them because they loved God. And as we read the Old Testament laws, they make us long for someone 
to come who would live God's way perfectly. Someone who would come and fix me. And then Jesus comes and Jesus does exactly that. The Old Testament laws point us to Jesus. They get us ready for Jesus. They teach us about Jesus. They make us long for the Jesus who would come and fulfill them. And then the second thing the Old Testament laws do for Christians, they give us insight. Uh, The Old Testament laws, they show us God's values, what God loves, what God hates. They show us God's character. Uh, We don't read them to keep them. We read them to learn from them what God's on about, see the principles here, and we'll see what we learn about food from the food laws in a second. Uh, but let me, let me try and sum I've done this very quickly. I've got an article that I'll tell you about in a second that I wrote on this. Uh, let me try and sum it up with an illustration. I think that the laws for Christians, the Old Testament laws for Christians, are a little bit like the ex-headmaster of a posh private school. Uh, while they were the headmaster... They had to be obeyed exactly. Uh, if, if the students didn't listen to their headmaster, they could have faced attention. They could have been expelled from school. But now they're the ex-headmaster. So what they say is no longer law for the school students. A new headmaster is in place, a little bit like Jesus here. And the new headmaster needs to be obeyed, a bit like the New Testament laws of Jesus for Christians. But that doesn't mean the ex-headmaster is irrelevant. The fact that they're an ex shows you there's a new one who's replaced them, like how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And the ex-headmaster is still worthy of respect because they can give insight into how to live because they did once run the school, like how the Old Testament laws give us insight. Hopefully, that's a helpful illustration. Like I said, I wrote an article about this, a nine-page article. It'll be in Salt Weekly, and I printed a couple of copies at the door if you want to explore this more. Uh, I've done this very quickly, but very quickly, just to finish, let's go to the, very th- the third question. What's the reason for the Old Testament food laws? So God's people can live holy lives, even in their kitchens. What are Christians meant to do with Old Testament laws? See how it points us to Jesus and get insight about God. And what are Christians meant to do with food? Well, what does the Old Testament teach us? What insights do we get to the Old Testament? It teaches us to live holy lives even in our kitchens. Our holiness is still God's goal for us as Christians. There's, uh, there's dozens of verses in the New Testament about this. Here's just one. 1 Peter 1.15 says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. More than anything else, what God wants for us is to be holy and different to the people around us and to love him by obeying him. And God still rules our kitchens. And the kind of God who rules your kitchen is not the kind of God you can hold at arm length. You, if you're a Christian, you don't have part of your life called church and another part called work and another part called me time and God rules some of them. God rules all of it. God cares about all of it. But he rules our kitchens now, not by telling us what to eat, but how to eat. And we get this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we discover we can eat anything, but for God's glory, guided by love. Uh, In this area, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and then he changes it. Uh, We saw this just a second ago in Mark. 
Let me show you it again. Jesus says, Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes. Now, you remember that idea of clean and unclean food in the Old Testament as a symbol? When Jesus comes, he gives the point of the symbol. And his point is, food can't make you clean and perfect. Food can't make you defiled. Food doesn't change anything about the real problem, hearts. Only Jesus can fix our hearts. And he has. And so because Jesus has fixed our hearts, now Christians can eat anything because we don't need the symbol anymore. The reality has been fixed. We don't need the symbol anymore. But God still rules our kitchens. God still calls us to be holy. So how do Christians live different to the people around us when it comes to food? Not by only eating ox and eggs with a side of grasshoppers for breakfast. Now, it's by eating for God's glory, guided by love. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. We eat for God's glory, guided by love. Uh, So how do you give God glory with food? Uh, You give God glory by giving thanks to God for every single bite of food that you ever eat, because it's come from Him. You give God glory by being hospitable and sharing food. You give God glory by being generous and not a a greedy glutton. You give God glory by not worshipping food like MasterChef does or My Kitchen Rules does. Our culture actually worships and loves and delights and worships food. We give God glory by not worshipping food, eating it for sustenance, giving God thanks to God for it, thanking God for our taste buds, but giving God the glory, not food the glory. And we do it guided by love eating whatever will help you share the good news about Jesus and giving up your freedoms out of love. Uh, So I will eat slabs of meat if it will help me share the gospel with someone who's a meat eater. And I will eat like a vegan if it will help me share the gospel with someone who's a vegan. Uh, And also not causing our Christian brothers and sisters to sin. Uh, If any of us have a weak conscience and believe that it would be sinful for you to eat or drink something, If any of us feel that way, the rest of us should give up our freedom to eat that food or that drink while we're with you out of love. This is just super quickly some of the stuff that the New Testament tells us. But let me wrap up. I told you this was ambitious. Let me wrap up. What's the takeaway? I think the takeaway is this for you if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're exploring Jesus. Here's the takeaway for you. Forget about the rules for a second. The heart of Christianity is not about us keeping rules in the hope that God may accept us. It's about a relationship with a God who already accepts us because Jesus kept the laws for you. And we do what God asks because we already are loved by God, forgiven, accepted, safe. Come and taste that before you even think about keeping the rules. And can I say, if you're a Christian, let me paraphrase two of the verses we've seen today. We are a people holy to the Lord our God. 
Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen us to be his treasured possession. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we've looked at some really big ideas today. Uh, Please, Lord, help us as we sift through them, as we ponder them. Help us to live the way you want us to. Help us to find the truth. Help us to wrestle with your word as a church. Uh, And help us, Lord, to bring glory to you in whatever we do. And we're sorry for the times we haven't done that. We're sorry for the times that we've eaten without no regard for what you want us to do. Um, We pray, Lord, that we would honor you because you deserve it. We pray that we would love you. Amen.